Father, I just feel the joy of the Spirit in this room every time we gather. It's such a wonderful thing, Father, to be surrounded by men and women who have such a, a similar story. Saved by grace. A sinner, Father, who received mercy. A man or a woman who desires to know you more deeply and to follow you more honestly, more obediently. And that story repeated so many times over the history of your work on earth is a story that you still intend to continue in the work that we do on your behalf. And I thank you, Father, that we have been called into faith, that we've been given the benefit of the word of God and of the spirit to teach us, of men and women to pray for us, of a small church dedicated to those fundamentals. Thank you, Father, that while the world may be turning astray and each of us in our own way has sin and has shortcomings and temptations, nonetheless, you're faithful even when we are not. And your faithfulness, Father, is so evident in the room amongst uh, the room in front of me with all those amongst us, and particularly in my own life, that you could take someone like me, Father, who lived his life for 20, 25 years without even a concern for who you were, and then in a moment bring the truth of the gospel, and then in days to follow, ask that I might serve you in this way. Who is man that you would regard him? Thank you, Father, for that privilege. Thank you for those who would hear your word this morning and for the work that it will do in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Every decision you make in your life, every priority you set, every action you take carries a consequence. Sometimes those consequences are good. For example, sometimes you make a decision like accepting Christ, good things follow as a result. We know that. Or we prioritize expenses in our budget or activities in our schedule. And as a result, we're going to be rewarded with security, perhaps, or increased contentment in some way. When we take a proper course of action at work, at school, wherever, we're likely to be recognized for our diligence and for our judgment. But sometimes the consequences of our actions carry negative outcomes. There's a story of a little guy sitting at one end of a bar, staring at his drink, An hour passes by, and he still hasn't touched it, just staring there. And at the other end of the bar, there's this big biker type, big troublemaker type. The guy thinks he knows everything, and he's been watching this little guy for a long time. And he's thinking to himself, why won't he drink that drink? Finally, he can't take it anymore, so he gets up, walks to the other end of the bar, grabs the guy's drink without saying a word, and just gulps it in front of him, just to show him that that's how a man drinks. And as he does that, the little guy just starts bawling, just starts crying right there in front of him at the bar. And the bigger guy says, oh, come on now, man. I was just giving you a hard time. It's no big deal. I'll buy you another drink. I can't stand to see a man cry. And the young guy says, you don't understand. This is the worst day of my life. He says, I can't do anything right. I I overslept and I was late for an important meeting. And so I was fired. And I went out to my car in the parking lot and I found it was stolen and I don't have any insurance. And I grabbed a cab home. But then in the cab, I left my wallet. And so I'm at home looking for money, and I find my wife cheating with another man. So as I'm walking out, the dog bites me. I find myself in this bar now just trying to get up the courage to take my own life. And then you come over and drink the poison. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes the consequences of our actions are negative, no doubt. When we set wrong priorities, when we make bad judgments, when we ignore wise counsel of godly friends, when we do those things, it's only natural that we suffer as a result of our poor judgment, our poor actions. On the other hand, we know the Lord is patient with us as his children. And so we know that he frequently rescues us from the consequences of our actions. And he always forgives us in our faith in Christ Jesus. 
But just because he's merciful and just because he's forgiving doesn't mean that we won't still see consequences at times for our actions. On the contrary, the Bible teaches that there are eternal consequences as well as temporal ones for the things we do. For going against his commandments, for ignoring the counsel of his word. Now, folks, I'm not saying that our salvation is even in view. You all know from certainly the teaching I've done, if not from your own experience in Scripture, that our salvation being based on faith alone is not in jeopardy because of sin. You didn't earn it in doing good things. You can't lose it in doing bad things because salvation is by faith, not by works. But there's a whole lot more to our relationship with Christ than simply the question of whether or not our eternal destiny includes heaven. That, that is the basis for entering into the relationship. That is not the consequence of the relationship. The relationship goes far deeper than that. The question every Christian is supposed to consider is when we appear before the Lord, what will he say about the way we served him with the opportunities he gave us? That's what should be on our minds every day. It's clear enough in the study we've done already through the first part of the first letter to the Corinthians that this church was not focused on that question. Whatever they were focused on, the question that concerned them was not, how will the Lord judge me in my day? We already know, for example, that they were preoccupied with earthly achievement, with earthly appearances, with earthly approvals. And we're going to see in coming chapters, they were also preoccupied with earthly pleasures. We already know that they fought over who had the greatest honor in the church on the basis of who baptized them. I mean, that's silly, isn't it? To be concerned with your honor as associated with who baptized you or who converted you. I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos, they said. Then they've also taken pride, it appears, in their very fact of being Christian, in following Christ. Though Paul says, you know, that had nothing to do with human wisdom. Meanwhile, Paul says, you've overlooked some details. You've overlooked the fact that even your mentors themselves, these men, Paul and Apollos, we were weak. We were unimpressive. We didn't come with wisdom. We didn't come with cleverness of speech. That kind of thinking and the behaviors that come from it are indicative of spiritual immaturity, Paul's going to teach today, of living in the flesh rather than resting on the counsel of the spirit. Last week, Paul told him, you know, you had access to everything that you need for godly living. You have the mind of God and the fact that the spirit indwells you. The spirit knows everything about God. The spirit is inside you, making that accessible. So therefore, you have access to everything that God would provide if you'd only take advantage of it. But they hadn't made use of it. They hadn't made use of what God provided. So now in chapter two, verse 12, we pick up in today. Paul moves into a discussion of the consequences of spiritual immaturity. Not only now in this world, but also in the future, in that moment of eternal judgment. We pick up again, verse 12. Look what Paul says. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now, to understand what he's saying, let's consider where this fits contextually in chapter 2. In the first part of chapter 2, Paul explained that his success in spreading the gospel in Corinth and elsewhere was a result of God's power, not his power. So you can't credit Paul with his success. The source of that power was literally the spirit of God working in Paul, the same spirit that indwells every believer. That spirit, Paul says, gave him the words to use. 
And the spirit also was the thing in the church, giving the Corinthians the wisdom to understand it and respond. In fact, we all have this same spirit. So that means we all have the same wisdom of God freely available. We can have the words we need in the moments we need, and we can have the ears we need in the moments we need because God's at work in both cases. Remember last week we talked about communication theory at a high level. It's sender and receiver and message. Well, the sender is God's wisdom. The receiver is God's enablement and the message is God's design. It's God from end to end. Paul is trying to tell this church. And he wants them to understand there is a difference between that, God's power in that message, and what the world relies on in its wisdom. In verse 12, Paul says, The spirit we receive when we came to faith is fundamentally different than the nature or the spirit of the unbelieving world. There is the spirit of God, and then there is the spirit of the world. Everyone begins their life as an unbeliever. No one's born a Christian. No one's born a Baptist. Well, no, you can be born a Baptist, but that's not the same thing as being born a Christian, right? I was born a Catholic. That didn't make me a Christian. Those things are independent. It's not who you're born to. It's how you're reborn. Everyone begins life as an unbeliever. So we who are believers today rely on the spirit today, but we once relied on the world spirit, as do all men in the beginning. What is the world spirit that Paul's describing here? Well, it's two things primarily. First, it's a reference to the nature or the spirit we inherited at birth from Adam. Human beings are both flesh and spirit. Your flesh is the container to hold the spirit, which is the eternal. That container is temporary. It passes away. In fact, just look around the room. You can see it happening around us, right? Everyone's basically getting a day closer to death every day that passes. And we look like it. I mean, collectively, not just John. And... That movement to the grave is an ever-present reminder that this container is temporary by design. God has put it in that state so that it can be replaced and so that we would have a memory throughout our life that we don't exist here forever. So that begs the question, what comes next? That begs a very important answer. So we have a temporary container. But the spirit is eternal. The spirit exists forever. And that leaves you with the question, where will my spirit be when my body is no longer? The Bible teaches us that the dead spirit we received at birth is incapable by its very nature of pleasing God or following God's commands. Paul says this very succinctly in one verse out of Romans, Romans 8, 7. He says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It is a spirit that cannot please God, for it does not know God. It is a spirit that lives for itself. Paul will explain this far greater detail later in this letter in chapter 15. So we'll get to it in about five years. So the first thing is it's a spirit of deadness that you inherit from Adam that you're born with. The second thing to understand about the spirit of the world is it is under the control of Satan, of the enemy, who is temporarily the power of this world, according to Scripture. The unbelieving world is a world of fleshly pawns on a chessboard who do not know that, who do not wake up every day saying to themselves, you know, here I go again, serving Satan for another day. This spiritual truth is not dependent on human knowledge of it. It happens with or without people knowing that this is what's happening. But the spirit, Satan, that is, is the one who manipulates and controls fleshly people with dead spirits. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter two. 
2, verses 1 through 3, he says, speaking to the church, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, there's the word, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too formerly lived in the flesh, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul says, before we were saved by God's grace, we lived as the world lives, as the unbelieving world does right now, as men and women who are dead to the truth of the gospel and and to the truth of who God is, who live according to the course of the world, who live according to Satan's authority, the spirit working in the world. And then the writer of Hebrews adds this. The spirit of the unbeliever is subject to Satan through the mechanism of fear of death. Fear of death is what drives the behavior of unbelievers to do what Satan wants. Hebrews says this in chapter 2, 2, 14 and 15. He says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's the state we were once all in. By the way, one of the reasons why Christians are called to not have fear, because fear is the trait that should define unbelief, not a trait that should define belief. We should be motivated by our fear of God and our knowledge of him. So the Corinthian church, Paul says, were believers. We know that they had the spirit and therefore their understanding of what Paul was saying didn't rely on Paul's wisdom or their own wisdom. It relied on the spirit delivering them. That wisdom. That's why Paul says it was spiritual words combined with spiritual thoughts. He means that while the spirit was working in him to deliver the right words, that same spirit was working in the people he was talking to to make sure those right words became the right thoughts, the spiritual thoughts in their minds. So the church can't credit Paul with having the right words. It can't credit itself with having the wisdom to figure out what Paul said. Paul was a vessel. They were vessels. The Lord was a sender. The Lord was a receiver. The Lord was the author of the message. So where is there room for pride in any of that? None. That's the whole point. No man may boast. But the unbelieving world can't tune into that frequency. That's the fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Believers can speak with the wisdom that God gives them. Believers can hear the truth of God with the wisdom God gives them. And they're speaking a message God delivered to them. But it's on a frequency that the unbelieving world cannot tune into apart from God's power. Look at where Paul goes next in verse 14. He says, but a natural man does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul uses the term natural here. You've probably heard him use this other places, perhaps. When Paul uses the word natural, it's his way of saying unbeliever. Because every person is born an unbeliever. And in that sense, it is the natural state of men to be unbelieving. It requires the supernatural work of God to get us out of that problem. Natural men is the term he uses. So a natural man, Paul says, does not accept the things of the spirit. Now, what does that mean? What is Paul saying? What does it mean that an unbeliever cannot 
He didn't say will not. He didn't say does not. He says cannot accept the things of the spirit. Well, let's start with what are the things of the spirit? It's the wisdom of God. It's the knowledge of who he is. It's the things we've talked about, chief among them, the gospel. The gospel itself is the wisdom of God. It is a spiritual truth. So a natural man cannot accept the gospel. The natural man cannot accept anything that then follows from the gospel, the truth of who God is, the nature of the church, the the role we play on earth, the, the mindset the believer has about things after death. All of that, the spiritual truth God offers in his word, is outside the reach of an unbeliever. He cannot understand them, Paul says, because they can only be spiritually appraised. And the word appraised in Greek is the word for investigated. Understood, torn apart, looked at, experienced in a way that makes sense. Only a believer can understand spiritual truth. Let me use a simple illustration to emphasize what Paul is saying. I want you to imagine a person raised in an English-speaking home from English-speaking parents. So naturally, they are English-speaking. So in that sense, they are natural English speakers. So in order to communicate with that person, how do you have to speak to that person? You have to speak in English. Makes sense, right? Now, I want you to imagine one day this English-speaking person walks into an elevator, and in that elevator, there are already two other people in the elevator. They close the door, and as the three of them ride up in the elevator, those two strangers start to speak to each other in Swedish. Now, the English-speaking person can hear the words, and he knows there's something happening. There's communication taking place. He's, He's not ignorant of that obvious fact. But the language is so different... It actually sounds strange. It actually sounds funny. It's not just that it's unintelligible. It's foolish sounding. Behind this guy in this elevator are two people holding what sounds like a very foolish conversation that he cannot understand. He can't will himself into an understanding of it, can he? He can't decide in the moment, you know, I want so badly to know this that I'm going to suddenly understand Swedish. It's it's impossible. Now, let's imagine that that same English speaking person enters the elevator with a friend And the friend just happens to understand Swedish. So when those two people begin talking in Swedish behind him and behind his friend, the English speaking guy turns to his buddy and says, what are they saying? And of course, at that point, his Swedish speaking friend says, well, I can tell you exactly what they're saying. And then that communication is made. Now, let's change the situation. Instead of three people in an elevator speaking different human languages, I want you to imagine that. That individual who walks into the elevator is an unbeliever. And he walks into the elevator and there's two believers standing in the back of the elevator. And they all speak the same language, English, whatever. But this time, those two believers begin to talk about their shared faith while that other person is in their hearing. They talk about their appreciation for God's grace and about their desire to please him prior to their judgment day. They talk about the fact that they have spiritual gifts that they desire to use in the body to glorify him. They remark on the fact that their salvation was based in grace, not in works, and how thankful that they are for that because they understand their works could never measure up. And they speak about their faith. They speak spiritual truth. Now, what do you think that unbeliever in the elevator thinks? Paul says it would be as if those two believers were speaking Swedish. The unbeliever understands the words to some extent. They understand it's a language they know. But the meaning, the significance, totally lost. They cannot understand that foolish stuff that those two people are talking about. And that's Paul's point. Only when the Lord is ready to bring that natural man an understanding of spiritual things will he have the capacity to understand such a conversation. And he does it by bringing him an interpreter, by putting a friend next to him, so to speak, but not just next to him. In him, the Holy Spirit indwells us 
to teach us all things. So what was previously dead words bouncing off the skull of an unbeliever, a natural man, suddenly becomes spiritual wisdom that he can understand. As God allows, as God appoints, as the interpreter does his work. So that in the moment the gospel is presented, the spirit must be present to impress upon the unbeliever the truth of that message. Otherwise, it is a seed that falls on hard packed ground and does not penetrate. And that by the work of the Spirit, the person then believes. By that same work, they then come to understand greater things of spiritual truth. And they grow in that knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. That's the process. Furthermore, in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, Our transition from natural to spiritual is so complete that even afterward, we have no need for anything to reveal spiritual truth to us beyond what we have in the Spirit. Paul says the believer is not appraised by anyone. Now what he means by that is no one can come to a believer who is indwelled today by the Holy Spirit and offer that believer some additional source of spiritual truth. Now, we're not saying that we can't benefit from teaching. We're not saying, Paul's not trying to imply here that everybody's an island, and the moment you become a believer, wham, you have the Spirit show up, and you're suddenly a walking spiritual encyclopedia. Remember the example I gave last week? It's like having a library card. Just because you get the card doesn't mean all the knowledge on the bookshelves leaps into your brain the moment you get the card. Similarly, the fact that the Spirit has indwelled us doesn't mean all of that God's wisdom is suddenly in our, in our brain running around in there. It's potentially there as we give ourselves the opportunity to know it. But we have to avail ourselves of it. And Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians that the church has been given teachers and others so that we might be matured for the work of ministry, that we would understand these truths. But it's not because those men or women who teach us have sources of knowledge different than us. It's that they have the ability to examine it with us and show us the truth of what's been provided in Scripture. It is a catalyst, if you will. It's God's working through another person to give you greater opportunity in what has been made available. Paul quotes from Isaiah to prove his point. Isaiah 40, 13. He says, who can teach God anything he doesn't already know? We all understand the answer is no one teaches God anything. Well, if you already have the mind of God in the spirit, then who could come along outside him and offer something you don't already have access to? All right. Now, what Paul has done at this point, Paul has delivered a defense of the truth. That was intended to correct them on their theology in place of that prideful view they were holding previously. So he's given them the corrected theology. Now he's going to rebuke them for where they are in their spiritual immaturity. And that's beginning in chapter 3. Go with me to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshy. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshy? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Paul says at the beginning here of chapter 3, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men. What he's saying to this church is, you're not ready to receive spiritual wisdom. Not at the level you should be. Not for what God has freely prepared for you. Not by what you have access to in the spirit. Because you're still living in an infantile state of spiritual maturity. And he begins to explain that though we have access to the mind of God, that wisdom doesn't flow to our brains. And in fact, it can be impeded by our unwillingness to pursue it. He uses the term spiritual infants. 
he makes a comparison between the spirit and the body. He says, if you look at the body and the way it grows, life begins as an infant. There's certain qualities to life as an infant. Among them, nursing is the food appropriate for an infant. You can't do better than that. In fact, you can't do other than that. If you were to try to give an infant something other than milk, it would choke and die. So milk is not just good, it's necessary. But at some point in the growth of that human being, milk stops being good and starts becoming dangerous if it's its only food. Can you imagine a 14-year-old boy drinking nothing but nursery formula? No, because he wouldn't live long enough to get there. He'd become anemic, he'd become weak. Eventually, the body cannot subsist on simply that food type. It needs something stronger, something to, to build its strength, solid food, in other words. And that's the analogy Paul is drawing from here in the Corinthians' spiritual situation. They were not moving forward in spiritual maturity. They were living in the flesh, and that was the indication of their spiritual immaturity. They were living in the flesh. Paul says they're fleshy. That's what he means by that. And in contrast to someone who should be by now receiving solid food of spiritual depth, these people were still in a state where they needed milk. Paul says, I couldn't even talk to you like you should be talked to at this point. Spiritually mature men living, he says, as a natural man or as he says, mere men. He's saying, you know what? I can't tell the difference between your life and the life of an unbeliever. As a result, that tells me you are spiritually immature, you are infantile in your spiritual development, you are fleshy. It would be as if that friend in my earlier example, that English-speaking man who walked into that elevator with his buddy, who was capable of translating Swedish, and at the moment the translator says, let me help you understand what's being said around you, if at that moment our friend put his fingers in his ears. That's what spiritual immaturity looks like. It's rebelling against his opportunity to help us through life. It's intentionally ignoring his counsel. It's putting our fingers in our ears spiritually. Paul calls these people fleshy or mere men or natural men as a rebuke for their spiritual immaturity. We have different words today. What you often hear said instead today is carnal Christian. Carnal. The word carnal is flesh, literally. The Christian who is chosen in their life to please their flesh rather than to please God carnal Christians. And let's be honest here. To some extent, we are all carnal at some moments and to differing degrees. There's no such thing as a non-carnal Christian at all times. But that doesn't really get to the main issue, right? The main issue is what defines your life? How is it that your life looks generally? Flesh-pleasing, God-pleasing. That's the question. Now, the other thing we ought to note is carnality doesn't always mean living in outright rebellion to God. It's not all drugs, sex and rock and roll. That's just that obvious type we think of when we think of the carnal Christian, right? Carnal Christians come in all stripes and in all colors, so to speak. Some are hardworking men and women, but they're so focused on career or on school or on hobbies that they neglect their spiritual development. Some are so devoted to keeping up with the Joneses that their goals and their priorities leave them no room for the Lord's desires. Materialism is their God in that sense. And so they're carnal in that way. Some are so taken by comfort and ease that they insulate themselves from the toil and the danger of advancing the kingdom. So they say no when God opens doors of opportunity. Carnality is not simply running off and living a life with sinners. It's sinning by not running with Christ. The one thing all carnal Christians have in common, though, is they please the flesh 
seeking for pleasure and approval in this world rather than in the next. So when we come across one of these carnal Christians, or if we might be worried that, you know, that sounds a lot like me, how do we know for sure? What would be some good tests? Well, Paul says that these people will be spiritually immature, infants. What does infant mean in the context of Christianity? Well, you could start to think of tests of knowledge as ways of measuring spiritual maturity. How much you know in scriptural terms could maybe then be a shorthand way of knowing, is this person spiritually mature or not? I will tell you from experience, that's a really bad measure. I have met some very spiritually immature people that can quote lots of scripture. And I have met some very spiritually mature people who haven't spent as much time in the Bible. That is not to diminish the value of scripture. And that's certainly not to say Bible study isn't an element to spiritual maturity. What I'm saying, though, is it's not about what you know. It's about who you are and what you do. What you know becomes an element contributing to who you are and what you do. But it can't take the place of who you are and what you do. Paul says that that kind of knowledge is just the kind that puffs up. What we're looking for is someone whose behavior is consistent with Christ-like living. That's the key, Christ-like living. So what is milk? Paul says, you know, I can only give you milk. What is milk? I mean, we're not talking about literal food, right? It's not milk and solid food in the literal sense. What does it mean that he gave them milk? Well, they're metaphors, as you can tell. They're metaphors for levels of spiritual truth. Simple truth is milk. Deep more complex concepts of our walk with Christ is solid food. Simple truth would be things like the truth of the salvation message itself, that it's by faith, not by works. That's the kind of thing you teach an immature believer so that they don't get the sense somewhere in their walk that they need to serve God through works in order to hold on to their salvation. That would be a mistake. Simple truth would include the commandments of Christ. Simple truth would include the story of Christ himself, of his walk on the earth in the Gospels, of his beginnings of the church in the book of Acts, perhaps. The essential doctrines of what it means to be Christian. That's simple things, but it takes a while to get there. I have to teach you basic math before I move you to algebra. What would solid food, though, be? Well, perhaps it's things like the pictures and the types of Christ in the Old Testament. Perhaps it's the covenants. The way in which God has used those to fulfill his purposes through Christ. Perhaps it's the eschatology of Scripture. Perhaps it's God's future plan for the church of what life after this age holds for us. You see, it's not that one truth is different than the other or greater than the other. They're all truth. It's knowing that you have to start with algebra before you get to differential equations. It's I got to start with, you know, basic natural science before I can get to quantum physics. It's that I can't understand these things without these things. It's just that in this case, the stakes are so much higher when we're talking about spiritual truths. Try understanding the covenants if you don't understand grace. You see the problem? Paul says this church was not able to receive solid food because all they could stomach was milk. But think about the irony in this case. These people are prideful. They think they have all the wisdom in the world. They're fighting with each other over who's got more wisdom. Paul says you're sucking on bottles, spiritually speaking. Paul said, look at your behavior. He talked to the church and he says, you're fighting with each other over prideful issues that demonstrate your spiritual immaturity. In that way, he says, are you not mere men? Similarly, today, when we see behaviors that are typical of people whose attitudes toward God and their life and their commitment toward Christ are immature and fleshy and absorbed in the here and now and absorbed in sins of one kind or another. You're looking at someone who, though they're saved by grace and hallelujah for it, nonetheless, they are spiritually immature 
and they are unable to accept the deeper things of God. Paul says, I have no choice but to speak to you in simple ways. They were so immature spiritually, they couldn't share in the very things that they prided themselves on thinking they already had. Paul's words remind us that our behavior is a fair indicator of spiritual maturity. If we are infants in Christ, if we are recent believers, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in being a new believer who needs to understand basic things first. That's the state we all start in. And our behavior in that infantile state of Christianity will naturally take on behaviors that are more like flesh than like spirit. I'm fond of saying the day after I was saved, my life looked almost exactly like it did the day before I was saved. There is no shame in that. But if we have been a believer for years and years, regardless of our chronological age, and our life doesn't look a whole lot differently than it did before we came to know the Lord, by Scripture we can say, shame on us. You can't excuse that anymore from the sake of being an infant. It's like a 7-year-old still using a pacifier or a 25-year-old still letting their mother dress them. Our immaturity is shameful. Folks, the call of Scripture is that we would come to grips with spiritual immaturity, that we wouldn't be satisfied with it. And the reason we are not to be satisfied with this has nothing to do with what our parents think. It has nothing to do with what our friends think. It has little or nothing to do with what our church leaders think. This is not for appearances' sake that Paul is calling us to become spiritually mature in our walk. That may get us started. That may be the first reason we think to actually act, but it's not the ultimate one. Paul, in the rest of this chapter, when we come back to this book, explains who it is we should be concerned with, why it is we are called into spiritual maturity, what the benefit is in it for us, and why it's so essential. The clock is ticking. Time is running out. We want to be ready for something that's coming. And when we reach that point, the die is cast. The results are in. The votes are counted. There's no opportunity to go back and reevaluate how we got there. There's no chance to reset. There's no mulligans. And Paul is telling this church, your spiritual immaturity has left me unable to move you along a path that has at its end your benefit, your good outcome, your reward. And I can't move you there if you're not ready to make that walk with me. We don't want to do that. And we want to find out more from next time what Paul has to say to this church so that we can be ready to. Our behavior and our choices matter. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, there is not a man or woman in this room who can stand before you and not say, we have sinned, we have a life of error behind us, we have regrets, and but for your grace and your mercy, we would be condemned for it. We are all in that boat together, Father. The measure of our maturity and faith, as you tell us in your word, is not by how much we've done in the past, but by what we will do in the future. So I ask, Father, that with what we've heard in the scriptures this morning, we would all be given thought, given reason to consider where we're going in our walk with you. Are we on a path to maturity? Are we considering our opportunities carefully? Have we let opportunity pass by because we were more concerned in our flesh than we were in pleasing you? Will you help us, Father, to not make that mistake a second time or a third time or a fourth time? Will you give us the strength to say no to our flesh? Will you ask, Father, for us to consider in your word the outcomes of our decisions? Will you give us a heart to know what you want? Will you give us eyes, Father, to see as you see into eternity? Would you let us, Father, know these things now 
so that we may pursue a different course in the future. I pray this, Father, because I know there is a day in which you will tell us what you think about who we are and what we've done. And, Father, your scripture says that those who hear what I teach in this small room have been entrusted into the care that you've given to me so that they may be prepared for that moment. And, Father, that weight is is weighty. I pray, Father, that you would let what I said today be words that you would use in their hearts by your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.